From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving, four days before midterms. Also, Elon Musk starts layoffs at Twitter days after spending $44 billion to buy it. Saudi Arabia imprisoning some of its own citizens who return home after they post dissident tweets. New surge in pediatric cases, and later, Jesse Wilson, who'd stepped away from music, then a song she'd written in a period of grief, got used in the film The Woman King. When I wrote the song, I was talking to black people. There's a part of the lyrics that I'm also talking to myself about myself. Been marching so long, how far is it to get to where we're going? Like, how long? First in our newscast, it's Saturday, November 5th, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The National Weather Service says a string of strong storms that produced tornadoes left behind a trail of destruction in Texas and Oklahoma. Roger Edwards is with the Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma. We had a couple of lines of thunderstorms move across uh, Oklahoma and northeast Texas, western Arkansas and northwest Louisiana last afternoon and evening and and, uh, produced several tornadoes. Those tornadoes, unfortunately, did cause uh, some injuries and quite a bit of property damage, especially in northeast Texas and southeast Oklahoma. Oklahoma's governor says search and rescue teams are being sent to Idabel in McCurtain County, where at least one person is reported dead. The Texas town of Powderly also hit hard. At least two dozen people are reported injured, and dozens of homes and buildings are in ruins. Both parties are making a final push before voting ends Tuesday in the midterm elections. President Biden scheduled to campaign this morning in Illinois and will join former President Barack Obama in Pennsylvania this afternoon. Former President Trump is also set to campaign in Pennsylvania, where voters are deciding a key Senate race. The earlier-than-usual surge of the respiratory virus known as RSV may be easing, but now an unseasonable resurgence of the flu is intensifying across the country. NPR's Rob Stein reports on the latest data from the CDC. The CDC says the number of RSV infections seems to be declining in some parts of the country, like the southeast, but many hospitals are still being flooded, especially those that treat young children. At the same time, the CDC says this year's early flu season continues to intensify. The strain of flu that's dominating so far tends to hit young children and the elderly hardest. And the CDC says hospitalizations from the flu are already higher than they've been in a decade. At least two children have died from the flu. Flu vaccination rates are lagging, prompting officials to urge more people to get their flu shots. Rob Stein, NPR News. Stocks lost ground during a week punctuated by new jobs data and another big hike by the Federal Reserve. Here's NPR's David Gura. The three major indices ended the week down. The Nasdaq by more than 5.5%. Earnings from tech companies continue to disappoint Wall Street, and more of them announced job cuts in the face of economic uncertainty. Hope the Fed Reserve might slow its interest rate hikes faded fast on Wednesday when the central bank hiked rates by another three-quarters of a percentage point, and Fed Chair Jerome Powell said it's going to have to raise rates higher than anticipated to fight high inflation. Next week, we'll see new inflation data, the latest consumer price index. We learned Friday the U.S. economy added 261,000 jobs in October, and unemployment ticked up to 3.7 percent. David Gura. 
NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The mother of a developmentally disabled man is denouncing the Boston Bruins for signing a player who was convicted of assaulting and bullying her adopted son when the boys were middle school classmates. Joni Meyer-Crothers tells NBC Boston that new Bruins defenseman Mitchell Miller is, quote, a monster. He told our son that his black mom and dad didn't love him. That's why he had white parents. Um, On a daily basis was called the N-word, and all he wanted was friends. So he was an easy target for Mitchell. The Bruins signed Miller to an entry-level contract yesterday. General Manager Don Sweeney justified the signing this way. We feel that there's an opportunity for a young man to to have uh, a career as a result Um, despite, I should say, um, a very misguided and immature decision back when he was in the eighth grade. In a news release announcing his signing, Miller says he deeply regrets the incident. Myers Crothers says the Bruins are minimizing Miller's actions. Police in Acton have located a car they think was involved in a hit-and-run crash that seriously injured a 13-year-old boy. The car was found yesterday, one day after police released surveillance video of the car. Police say the boy was struck in a crosswalk on Great Road on Wednesday. So far, no one has been arrested. The town of Bourne is considering a ban on the sale of nips. Supporters of such a ban say the tiny bottles of liquor litter roadways. Liquor store owners say if customers cannot buy nips in Bourne, then they'll just go somewhere else to buy them. The Cape Cod Times reports members of the Bourne Recycling Committee will meet with liquor store owners on November 17th to discuss the issue. Boston holds its annual Veterans Day Parade today. More than 50 units are expected to participate, including the West Point and Navy Band Northeast's marching bands. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu also is scheduled to attend. The parade kicks off at noon from the Boston Public Library in Copley Square. In sports, last night the Celtics beat the Bulls 123-119. to Tonight the Celtics take on the Knicks in New York. The Bruins face the Maple Leafs in Toronto tonight. Sunshine today in Boston, highs in the mid-70s. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. Voters are voting. Election Day Tuesday, what better time to turn to? What better person to turn to than NPR Senior Washington Editor and Correspondent Ron Elving. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. We've heard so much for so many months. Uh, What issues does it seem to you are driving the election now? It depends somewhat on whom you ask. For Republicans, the issues are inflation, put that one in all caps, then crime and immigration. Democrats have pocketbook issues, too, uh, but they're all also talking about abortion rights, climate change, and support for democracy, uh, by which they mean rejection of the election deniers and others who have cast out on the legitimacy of recent vote counts. And there are other issues on both sides, of course, but those are the salients. What races around the country do you see as especially telling uh, or decisive? Pennsylvania and Georgia are obviously big prizes, but... In Arizona, that's, some, in some sense, ground zero, uh, because earlier this year, that state's Republican establishment was defeated in the party's primary. 
election deniers supported by the former president uh, were nominated for governor and senator, secretary of state. Uh, If the regular Republicans turn out for those nominees in their usual numbers, uh, the Trump Republicans may well win. And among other things, that would cost the Democrats uh, one of their seats in the Senate. Also out west in Nevada, another Democratic Senate seat is very much at risk. And back east, there has been particular interest nationwide in the Georgia Senate race. And unless the Democrats hold on to all three of those, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, uh, they're going to have a very hard time remaining the majority in the Senate. It's tragic that I even have to raise this, but the attack on Paul Pelosi last week, the threats on the life and family of a Illinois gubernatorial candidate, the kidnapping plot against the governor of Michigan, threats against election officials in Georgia and elsewhere. How worried are you about how dangerous democracy has become in America? It's increasingly worrisome. There has been far too much permission granted for all the things that you're describing, tacit permission, and even open approval for extreme measures. Uh, Most of it is coming on social media, and with the takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk, that particular space may be even more of a free fire zone for extremists. Do you make the reports that Donald Trump may announce uh, another run for the presidency after Tuesday? That would seem to be in the cards at this point. If indeed the Republicans take the House, and especially if some of Trump's endorsees win Senate seats, Trump is going to claim credit. He is going to see this as vindication. So this would be an opportune time for him to announce. It would also enable him to claim he is a political target if and when he is indicted for either his role in January 6th or for the Mar-a-Lago documents. And by the way, the Justice Department timetable could also be moving up once the election is over. And let's not forget, we are also expecting an announcement in the weeks ahead concerning President Biden's plans for 2024. And Trump is likely to want to get out there first and announce before Biden does and before some of the other Republicans who want to run in 2024. I don't want to anticipate anything when we'll know reality in just a few days, a few hours, really. But um, a divided government does seem to be assured, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And through most of our lifetimes, that has been the case. It does not always mean that government is hamstrung. It does not always result in gridlock. There have been cases, even where a president and a Congress have been very much at odds, when they can work together and get something done. Uh, We've also seen the opposite. (laughs) Very recently, I would say. Uh, Thanks very much. NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elvin, always good to talk to you, and uh, we will particularly look forward to what you have to say next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Elon Musk began to lay off workers at Twitter this week, wasting no time to try and cut costs at the company that is now his. He borrowed $13 billion to buy Twitter, has to find a way to pay that back. NPR's David Gurra joins us now. David, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here, Scott. So what point is there to being the richest man in the world if you've got to borrow $13 billion to buy a, a company? Question. <laughs> He's put himself in a really tough position, Scott. On the one hand, Elon Musk has all these decisions to make about how Twitter works, how he's going to change the platform, who's allowed on Twitter, who can post what, who's verified all of which are big questions. But if you set those aside, Musk also has to figure out how to make this deal work. And to say that's challenging is an understatement. He paid $44 billion for the company, but more than a quarter of that is money he borrowed. 
Joshua Cascade is a private equity investor who is also a lecturer at Yale School of Management. He's in a real bind, and he will not be able to bail himself out with just cutting costs. No one ever can. In short, Musk has to cut costs at Twitter and get to make more money because so much revenue is going to go toward those debt payments. Twitter was already loaded up with debt before this deal. And remember, Scott, this is not a company that's been reliably profitable. Mm. Reportedly, nearly half of Twitter's workforce has been laid off by Elon Musk. And and with due regard to the loss they suffer in livelihood, is, is that pocket change? Well, it's one way to cut costs. Twitter has staffed up in recent years, and it sends a very dramatic message. Musk has only owned this company for just over a week, and Twitter told everyone to stay home on Friday and announced these layoffs over email. But even if Twitter cuts half its workforce, the numbers still are not going to add up. You know, the economy has really soured since Musk made his offer for Twitter. Tech stocks have fallen dramatically. Tech companies are freezing hiring and laying off workers. There's just so much uncertainty about the economy right now. So if you look at Twitter's competitors and what they're doing when it comes to staffing, it's likely Twitter would have made some cuts anyway if Musk had not bought this company. So how does he make Twitter profitable? A big story this week had to do with verification, who gets a so-called blue check on the site, how we know that at NPR Scott Simon is, in fact, you, Scott. Yeah, yeah, we're both blue checks, appreciate that shameless yes. plug. Well, Musk has suggested charging users $8 a month for the privilege of getting verified, and that's one way Twitter can raise some money. But again, it's only going to make a dent on these really big, massive debt payments. The way Twitter makes money, and it has made money, is from advertising. But we've heard from other social media companies that lots of businesses are pulling back on digital ad spending in the face of economic uncertainty. And beyond that, what we've seen since Musk bought Twitter is advertisers getting cold feet, wondering what's going to happen, curious if users are going to stay or go, nervous about its owner's plans. And many of them are taking a pause, including GM, General Mills, and Audi, Of course, that's not going to help with Twitter's cash flow, and neither are calls we've heard from advertisers to boycott the site completely. What could come next? These are early days yet. We've seen Elon Musk float changes, then clarify them or walk them back. Joshua Cascade says what surprises him is that so many big banks went along with this deal, that they lent Musk money at the top of the market when the fundamentals didn't make sense, when the math didn't add up. Cascade really faults them for making that decision. They're in bed together. I think you're going to see the banks take major losses, hold that debt for many years, even though it's worth less on paper. And I I think they're all going to wait to see if he can dig his way out. Cascade says right now there is not a market for that debt with Twitter's financial problems and that economic uncertainty again. So they're going to bide their time. Doom scrolling, Scott, like the rest of us. (laughs) NPR's David Bluchek Gura, thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you, Scott. There is urgent news all over the world, but this week I've also thought of a child who lived 8,000 years ago. The small teeth of the child, who may have been as old as 10 or as young as 3, have been excavated from what seems to be a burial site in eastern Finland. A microscopic analysis of the site was recently published in the Journal of the Public Library of Science. Researchers discovered the grave when a forest trail was cleared, revealing a swath of red ochre, a clay known to be used in burials. The soil in Finland is acidic, so only traces remain at the site today. Two quartz arrowheads were found along with the small teeth. There were also fragments of feathers. Scientists surmise that the child's body may have been laid to rest on a bed of down or perhaps wrapped in a feathered cloak. Small hairs were found at the feet of the child from a wolf or a dog. 
Christina Monarmov, the University of Helsinki's Department of Culture, said, Dogs have been found alongside remains in other ancient burial sites. This all gives us a very valuable insight about burial habits in the Stone Age, she said in a statement, indicating how people had prepared the child for the journey after death. Those words pierced through the academic prose of the statement, prepared the child for the journey after death. 8,000 years ago, life for all had to be about bare survival, the perpetual ache of hunger, the rivalry for food with humans and other animals, the killing risk of cold, floods, and sickness. We often look at other times or people even now and think we don't see ourselves. We feel nothing in common. We wonder, how could people do that, think, or feel that way? But we can look at the story of the child laid in the ground so long ago to see that people who had to struggle just to survive each day still made time and room in their hearts to care for that child. They laid down the child and wrapped them in softness. They placed a dog or a wolf alongside to guard them on a journey somewhere beyond. It may be impossible to know where the people who buried that child thought they were going, whatever was their view of life and afterlife. But it seems like they wanted the child to feel warm. They wanted them not to be lonely. They wanted that child to know they were loved. And you're listening to NPR News. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. This is 90.9 WBUR, and stakes are high in the midterm. Spend election day and night with NPR and WBUR for analysis and results. Live coverage begins at 8 Tuesday on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's Greatest Comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall, HandelandHaydn.org. The Chestnut Hill School leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Both parties are making a final push before voting ends Tuesday in the midterm elections. President Biden is scheduled to campaign in Illinois this morning and will join former President Barack Obama in Pennsylvania later today. Former President Trump is also set to campaign in Pennsylvania, where voters are deciding a key Senate race. Oklahoma's governor says search and rescue teams are being sent to the small town of Ida Bell. Strong storms that produced tornadoes swept through the region along the border with Texas, leaving home and other buildings in ruins. Powderly, Texas, was also hit hard. In Game 6 of Major League Baseball's World Series is tonight. The game will be played in Houston with the hometown Astros leading the Philadelphia Phillies three games to two. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scribner, publisher of The Song of the Cell by the Emperor of All Maladies author Siddhartha Mukherjee, an exploration of medicine and the new ability to manipulate cells. Available in bookstores and online. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. There is a surge of respiratory infections among children. And that's not COVID-19. RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, is quite common, but it can be dangerous for infants and children. And it's hitting especially early in parts of the U.S. this year. Dr. Douglas Carlson chairs the Department of Pediatrics at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine in Springfield, Illinois. He's also medical director at St. John's Children's Hospital. Dr. Carlson, thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. And have hospitals in central and southern Illinois been getting filled? They have been, as we've been seeing across the entire state of Illinois, the Midwest, and really the whole country. Do people need critical care? Yes. A subset of kids are going into respiratory failure. So we're calling around to PICUs around the state and are unable to find an open bed for a patient. Mercy. Well, help us understand RSV, why it can particularly afflict young children. Yeah, respiratory virus is a respiratory virus that we saw on an annual basis between November and March each year until 2020 because of the masking and distancing took a year off. So a little surge, but early last year in the fall of 2021. This year we saw it coming through the Southern Hemisphere and did hit the United States in August and has come through central Illinois with a vengeance starting in really the end of September, early October. Mm-hmm. And for the last three or four weeks, the number of children that have needed to be admitted for a few days just to watch um, has really gone up. Every day, we're getting calls from around the state of Illinois to see if we have an open bed. Some days we say yes, most days we say not, and other days we're calling around the state. And sometimes we need to keep kids in our emergency room uh, under critical care circumstances for a day or two at a time until we find an open bed. When you're in Springfield, where do you, where do you call? I mean, St. Louis, Knoxville? Yeah, we're 100 miles from St. Louis, 200 miles from Chicago. Because we took a couple patients from the Chicago uh, suburbs, we're getting calls from 10 or 15 hospitals a day. Can you take another? Uh, It's really hard for Springfield to be the safety net for the suburban Chicago. But we do what we can, and then we need to take care of the patients in our region. So it really is an exchange of trying to get every time a bed is open, figuring out where that next patient is coming from, either your own emergency room or someone else's emergency department. And with the persistence of COVID-19 and now flu, does does that stretch all the resources you need? Yeah, luckily COVID uh, is still around at a significant level, but not that many kids are getting sick from it. We are really worried about uh, influenza. The numbers of positive tests have just started to climb, and usually that's a harbinger that within a few weeks or a month or two, they will be hitting the peak of flu. So the combination of the two, which is likely to happen, could even make this worse. Is there anything parents can do? You know, take precautions. This does most often affect severely uh, very young or those that have had previously, were born prematurely of heart disease, lung disease. Just be careful. If you have a cold, be careful, wash your hands. Don't take your young children into environments where they're likely to catch a cold from others. If a relative has a cold, say, hey, wait till you're over that cold. It's the usual precautions, washing your hands frequently when you take care of others and just taking precautions. Masks? 
Um, mask, if you have a cold as a parent, I think it is important to, to wear that mask because the, the, that masks do prevent the spread of uh, RSV. Should schools be telling youngsters to put on masks if they have the sniffles? I, I'm not going to go that far right now. I think what's more important that when your child is sick, recognize they're sick and don't send them to school so we don't spread this and make it worse for all. Dr. Douglas Carlson of the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Thank you. Saudi Arabia is cracking down on dissent, including targeting its citizens who live abroad. A new report by the Associated Press details how some Saudis abroad have been targeted by their own government, for what they post online and even say in private conversation. They've been arrested when they return home and are given harsh prison sentences, sometimes as long as 30 years. Ellen Nickmeyer covers foreign policy and national security for the Associated Press. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Please tell us about a couple of the cases that you have reported. The most recent one, um, it's a Saudi prince who was getting his undergraduate and then his master's at Northeastern University in Boston. Um, during the pandemic, he went home to keep studying at Northeastern remotely, and Saudi court documents show he was arrested there. This August, he's been sentenced to 30 years in prison for phone calls he made on a public phone in Boston and to his family on a Signal app, just about another family member who had earlier been imprisoned in Saudi Arabia. There, there was a case of a, a U.S.-Saudi citizen, a 72-year-old man living in Florida over the years, thinking in part that he had protection for being an American citizen. He tweeted a few tweets about Saudi Arabia. He, he went home, home to the kingdom and he was imprisoned there um, for those tweets. Uh, he's 72 years old, and he got sentenced to 16 years in prison. How does that violate the law? I mean, posting a tweet with a contrary opinion or something you say in a private conversation? Saudi Arabia for years has intensified its punishment of people who speak out on social media or publicly at all. It phrases that as being a challenge to the social unity of, of Saudi Arabia. How, how does the Saudi government get those recordings? Saudi Arabia media groups say it's been reported that it used the, the Pegasus Israeli military-grade spyware to listen in on phone conversations. Um, we had court documents backing up long-held suspicion that's, that Saudi government officials had an informant network keeping track of Saudis in the U.S. Has um, this kind of scrutiny and these kind of sentences increased under uh, Mohammed bin Salman? Definitely. It's increased ever since the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018 um, by Saudis in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. It, it just kind of changed what punishments or escalated what punishments faced ordinary Saudis or Saudi journalists or dissidents for speaking out. Has the U.S. government said anything to the Saudi government? I mean, these actions were on U.S. soil, weren't they? When we talked to the State Department for this story, they didn't specifically respond to questions about what Saudi Arabia was doing on national soil. It, 
it says that it's um, the State Department has spoken to embassies in D.C. in general recently about what it calls transnational uh, repression of governments by their citizens on U.S. soil. Has the Saudi government had any response, any explanation? Saudi Arabia told us that any allegations that the government worked against its citizens in the U.S. were preposterous and, and that the Saudi government only aided Saudis in the U.S. You've written, um, Ellen, that some Saudi nationals uh, question uh, the recent approach President Biden made to uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, saying it only encourages this kind of behavior. Right. They, there were many kind of objections to Biden's trips from rights groups and from Saudi exiles and Saudi activists before um, he traveled to Saudi Arabia to try to patch up relations with, uh, with the crown prince. And, and they say that these imprisonments of people with U.S. ties since then shows that their warnings have been borne out. They, they argue that attempting to appease the crown prince only emboldens him instead. So Saudi nationals in the U.S., perhaps any country in the world that might think they're, they're free of Saudi government surveillance or not. One woman, one Saudi woman told me she looks over her shoulders, and, and I think that's an accurate description of how Saudis live their lives on U.S. soil now. They, they're worried about their phone conversations um, being listened to. They don't, they don't know who they can trust. And they, some of them have to let their passports expire or go without documents because they don't feel safe going to the Saudi embassy, they say. Ellen Nickmeyer of the Associated Press, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for spending your morning with us. And if you tune into Weekend Sunday tomorrow with Aisha, talk about NPR vote talk with NPR voting election security correspondent Miles Parks about what you need to know this election day that big day is nigh here's what one expert wants voters to know there would be nothing that extremists and election deniers would like more than for voters to feel scared about whether they should vote and they shouldn't voters are showing that you can vote in complete safety in this election you can listen live tomorrow morning at this station's website or at NPR org We can find history in some unexpected places, like bite marks on a piano, when those teeth marks belong to Thomas Alva Edison. The inventor of the phonograph motion pictures and the light bulb was hard of hearing and found his own way to experience music. Robert Friedman is a collector and seller of antique Steinway pianos, and he joins us now. Mr. Friedman, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on. You have come to own a piano said to be Edison's. How do you know it was his? Well, the serial number, which is stamped everywhere on the piano, which goes back to the time when he bought it in June of 1890, is in all the history books, and it never left the New York area. It had uh, lived in four poems privately once it left the hands of his son who had sold it. Also, all the provenance uh, from the folks who had 
owned it previously to me, they carried all the paperwork with the piano, including the original receipts and information from the National Parks Commission in New Jersey, where the piano actually sat in his lab for the first 40 years of its life. Did uh, the people from whom you acquired this piano say, and look at the bite marks? Nobody who has housed that piano since the day it left his care and custody knew that the marks were in there. I kept the piano closed for the first couple of months that it was in my house. I opened it when it was time to tune the piano. And it just so happens that uh, Charles Fromer, who tunes pianos, lifted the top up and looked down on the lock bar. And he saw all these incisor marks on the top of the lock bar. And he says, oh, those are Edison's bite marks. He goes, I've read about this before many times. He used to bite his music boxes and he bit his piano. And then we realized what we had. I'm trying to imagine anyone, much less Thomas Edison, with their mouth clamped on a piano. And the sensation is amazing. It goes up through your skull. Your head resonates like a tuning fork. It's an amazing feeling. It goes through your shoulders, but you get the true vibration of the instrument and you hear the piano equal, if not better than if you just hear it through your ears. <laughs> I, I want to try it now. I must say there is something that is, is one sad and moving about imagining Thomas A. Edison biting down on a piano because he so much wanted to share in the joy of music. You have a real piece of history, don't you? I've been told. I personally was not so excited about buying it for the number that I had to pay for it because I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. But my wife said to me, she says, if you don't buy it, I will. She saw that, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I should be involved in considering all the years of buying and selling and trading and then eventually finding this one. So I'm, I'm glad I got involved. Robert Friedman, who collects Steinway pianos and is also author of The Steinway Hunter, a memoir. Thank you very much for being with us, and uh, may you enjoy your, your Steinways. I appreciate it very much. You have a wonderful day. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Time now for StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, recording and sharing the stories of service members and their families. As we get close to Veterans Day, we are featuring voices of vets who can often go overlooked. Women who served on the front lines of war before they were allowed in combat. Army nurses Diane Evans and Edie Meeks met in 1969 at the height of the Vietnam War. They were bunk neighbors stationed in the central highlands of Pleiku. StoryCorps, they remembered their service. We were in a very dangerous place in Vietnam, just surrounded by concertina wire. It was the epicenter of the fighting at the time. I remember the sound of shrapnel and the sound of thuds and rockets and mortars and that horrible, terrifying sound. 
But we didn't have time to be afraid. What we did was run to our patients and put mattresses on top of them and take care of their IV lines so they wouldn't pull apart. I mean, we were their only defense between the rocket attack and death. Yes. But I remember one night we were not on duty. And there was the worst sound I've ever heard in my life, hopefully never hear it again. The mirror on the wall in my little tiny closet-like room that I had fell off the wall and burst into a million pieces. And I decided, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die with Edie. And so I crawled out of my little room over these glass shards. I knock on Edie's door, and there you are with your helmet on over your rollers. And you were eating peanut butter and crackers under the bed. (laughs) I said, Edie, how can you eat at a time like this? And you said, (laughs) listen, I'm going to die happy. I'm going to die full, peanut butter, little chocolate, little crackers. (laughs) I loved that sense of humor at the time, and I still love it. And that's how we survived. But, you know, if we had died that night, Edie, we would have been in each other's arms. We would have been together. And I think maybe our biggest fear was we didn't want to die alone. Mm. And because of that feeling, we stayed so close to our guys. Yes, When I got home, everybody expected me to be the person I was when I left. And I wasn't. You know, the only guys that I could really remember were the guys that died. And so it was like I didn't really do anything over there. And it wasn't until the Vietnam Women's Memorial that this fellow came up to me and he said, Hi, Edie. It was this corpsman named Tom. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, I came to see you. We wondered all those years if we did a good job. And they came out of the woodwork all across the country. They were walking with their crutches and wheeling their wheelchairs and doing their wheelies like they always did when they were patients of ours. They wanted to find the nurse who took care of them because they wanted to say thank you. And that in and of itself is so healing. It's just something that's hard for anybody who wasn't there to understand. It's spiritual, it's sacred, and we are sisters, and we are brothers. Diane Evans and Edie Meeks. In the 1980s, Diane founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project in Washington, D.C., and she spent a decade fighting opposition to build it. Veterans continue to meet there to this day. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This is the last weekend of campaigning before Tuesday's election. Among the events today, Democratic gubernatorial contender Maura Healey takes part in rallies in Springfield and in Worcester. Republican candidate for Governor Jeff Deal makes appearances in Westford, Woburn, Haverhill, and Norwood. A Suffolk County prosecutor has been suspended with pay amidst allegations of misconduct. A man who served nearly 30 years in prison after being wrongfully convicted of murder claims Assistant District Attorney Mark Lee withheld evidence that could have led to his release. Robert Foxworth says Lee learned from an informant in 2007 that Foxworth was innocent. Foxworth served an additional nine years in prison before being released. He was exonerated last year. Sunshine today in Boston, highs in the mid-70s. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans start as low as zero dollars per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage bluecrossma.com slash go last week on wait wait don't tell me guest hassan minaj took a shot at the king i was with you until you went after ryan gosling and now wow. oh really helen you're talking about the dude that looks like he took too much claritin and always looks sleepy <laughs> i'm peter sagel this week we'll ask late night host amber ruffin if she has anything mean to say about a major movie star join us for a catty wait wait don't tell me from npr Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Scribner, publisher of The Song of the Cell by the Emperor of All Maladies author Siddhartha Mukherjee, an exploration of medicine and the new ability to manipulate cells, available in bookstores and online. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. I'm going to ask Kevin Wilson to read a line that sets off so much in his new novel, Now is Not the Time to Panic. Mr. Wilson? The Edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives, and the law is skinny with hunger for us. Whatever those words may mean. Two teens, Frankie and Zeke, growing up in Coldfield, Tennessee in the 90s, turned them into an art project, a much-reproduced poster that becomes a national phenomenon. But it's history stays buried and obscured until Frankie Budge, all grown up now and a writer, gets a call from a journalist. Kevin Wilson, author of Nothing to See Here and other novels, joins us now from Swanee, Tennessee, where he teaches at the University of the South. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You heard these words in your own life, didn't you? Yeah, this goes all the way back to Uh, The summer after my freshman year of college, which would have been, I think, 97, um, I was living in an apartment with my cousin and his best friend, whose name was Eric Haley, who had gone to NYU film school. He'd finished up grad school for acting and was moving after the summer to Los Angeles to be an actor. Mm -hmm. And that summer we made movies. He was kind of super charismatic and I was working for the medical center at Vanderbilt where my job was to type the policy and procedures manual and put it online. And I got so bored, I just started making up stuff and putting it in there. And I figured no one would ever notice or see it. I was just writing random things in all the policies. And I asked Eric if he wanted to add something. And and he gave me a version of that line. The minute he said it, it just kind of exploded in my brain. And I've held on to it ever since. Wow. And I gather uh, Eric left us during COVID. Yeah, so I was writing this book. He knew I was writing it. Um, 
And we'd fallen out of touch. He was in L.A. And I kind of assumed that the book would be uh, the thing that brought us back into each other's orbit. And then uh, he passed away suddenly, unexpectedly. Uh, and I felt like all I really had left was my memories of him. But then I realized I had this book that I could write my way towards something with these fictional characters, uh, that it was now their, their story. Uh, and that was freeing in a way. What do Frankie and Zeke find in each other that summer? A lot of people think it's, you know, kind of an adolescent crush. Well, I'm sure there's elements of that, you know, to, to see somebody who is interested in you and to feel that spark of recognition. But for me, I think what I was interested in is when you're isolated, when you're lonely, when you feel separate from the world, more than romance, it's the recognition that somebody else sees you for who you are. And, you know, you can have adults tell you, like, you can be anything you want or you have talent, but to have someone your, your own age look at you and see you and imagine you in the future, I feel like that can be more powerful. Yeah. They, they begin by putting their, uh, their artwork with those lines on bulletin boards, on the backs of, of cereal boxes, inside shoe boxes in stores, on the gravestone of an old Confederate soldier. What puts wings on those lines, though? What do you think it, in your novel began to set off, really, in city after city? So much of art, you know, there's a source. You know, it's attached to someone who can claim ownership of it. And, and what we hope is that person can maybe explain some of it to give us clarity. And so this anonymous poster, uh, it leaves it in the hands of the viewer or the receiver, to mm -hmm. fill it with meaning and to imbue it with meaning. And most people are pretty chaotic and strange and they fill it with the weirdest things. And I think that's what gives it wings is, is that there's no one saying it's correct or wrong and people just take it and run with it. This novel, this lovely novel raises the question, what makes something stick with people? Well, it's, I'm sure it's tied like, why do I remember this nonsense line? You know, it's because a person that I loved who meant the world to me, who was one of the first people to tell me that I could make art, said it, right? And so I held on to it because when I would say it in my head, I wasn't just hearing the line. I was remembering myself at 19 years old, not sure of what I was going to do, and having this other person show me this little sliver of light that I could walk towards if I wanted to. And that's why I remember it. I'm going to get to say it this time. <clears throat> the edge is a shantytown filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives, and the law is skinny with hunger for us. You know, I think it almost means something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, It's just so nice to hear someone else say it instead of just rattling around in my head, honestly. It's quite beautiful, and I don't know why, and I guess that's the point. Yeah, I've, I've had 25 years with it, and I still haven't figured it out. Kevin Wilson, his novel, Now is Not the Time to Panic. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. George Booth put a lot of dogs and cats in his cartoons. They weren't traditionally cute, but unquestionably companions. Threadbare, prong-eared bull terriers and cats who 
look electric charged while a woman strides into the living room with thick dark rings around her eyes and the dog and cats bounce off the walls to hear her announce, eyeliner is back. George Booth's bull terrier became a kind of mascot for the New Yorker for whom he drew cartoons. The dog listed slightly on his haunches next to a sign that said, beware, skittish dog. How New York. I don't try to analyze humor, he told the New York Times in 1993. You go nowhere doing that. A thing is funny or it's not funny. George Booth died this week at the age of 96. Sandra Boynton, the great author and illustrator, told us, 96 turns out to be not nearly enough years. So deft, so chaotic and precise, so benevolent and merrily subversive. And Asher Perlman, one of today's great New Yorker cartoonists, told us, I always loved the weirdness of his characters, the effortless flow of his line work, and of course, his otherworldly ability to capture the very essence of dog. I could stare at his cluttered, chaotic rooms for hours. George Booth also had the only cartoon in the New Yorker the week following the September 11 terrorist attacks on New York. It was a woman said to be based on his mother, who'd laid down her violin to sit on a stool and shudder in silence. The cat nearby had its head to the floor, cringing at something he couldn't bear to see. It was inexplicable without a caption, and like so much of what George Booth captured in his brushstrokes, somehow perfect. There's a lot of excitement and Oscar buzz around the film The Woman King. What may have gotten less attention is a life-altering triumph that is tied to the film's soundtrack. As NPR's Julie Haidt now tells us, the singer and songwriter Jesse Wilson was ready to walk away from music until her song Keep Rising was selected as the movie's closing song. Millions of people have heard this anthem over the credits of The Woman King. We just gotta rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up. Its creator, Jesse Wilson, is returning to the same small East Nashville studio where she recorded it to redo the song for a music video. But this time, she's accompanied only by a piano track laid down in advance. We're doing it like that for cost efficiency. I'm an independent artist. This is all coming out of my pocket. So to be honest, I just couldn't afford to have everyone here all day. Two whole years have passed since Wilson stepped up to this exact microphone, or any mic for that matter. Well, it's been a minute since I've express myself musically. I feel a little nervous a little bit, but I also feel very, very excited. Take the metronome out. Got to understand. Uh, more vocal. Having here in our hands. From mighty kingdoms of a distant land. Turn the world upside down. Yes, we can. We just gotta rise up. Rise up! That was just Wilson warming up. She's been a professional performer since she was eight years old and landing musical theater roles in New York in the mid-90s. In high school, she lied about her age to secure a regular cafe gig 
and she was hungry to learn the studio side of her craft when John Legend hired her to sing backup. Can I come with you to the studio, please? I'll be a fly on the wall, I won't make a sound, I just wanna come. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Wilson got into songwriting, collaborating with Legend, and contributing material to other R&B stars. She thought she might become one of those herself, but she couldn't get signed. Being a black woman, being a dark-skinned black woman, being told that that wasn't marketable, being told that no one would really be able to relate to me because of my complexion. The record deal Wilson had been waiting for became a reality when she moved to Nashville in 2013. There she met a white musical partner named Callie North and their soul-steeped roots rock duo Muddy Magnolias was a revelation to a country adjacent scene that made more room for black musical influence than black music makers. Britney Spencer, a rising country singer-songwriter and a black woman, took note of what Wilson brought to that business and recently called her to tell her so. The opportunities that a lot of artists like me are able to get right now, I think it's because little by little, people have been sowing seeds. It was important to me to reach out to Jessie and just let her know, I remember. And even if this space wasn't necessarily ready five, seven years ago, Man, I was there and I watched it and I, I just, I didn't forget. When Muddy Magnolias broke up, Wilson started finding her voice as a solo artist on the atmospheric side of rock and soul with her album, Phase. And here it comes, All of the context that people had of me as a vocalist was just this big singer. I made an intentional decision to never open up my voice past a certain place because I had been singing full out my whole life. And I wanted to hear the subtleties in my voice on record. Around that same time, Tyler, the creator, tracked Wilson down on social media, urging her to sing on his album, Igor. But those professional landmarks gave way to a string of personal losses. Her beloved grandmother died, and her healthcare worker dad barely survived COVID, which also brought her touring to a halt. Then she lost a pregnancy. Unfortunately, after four months, we lost our child, a boy, who we named Willing. It just felt like I was just down in a hole. I kept looking for things to grab onto, but nothing, nothing was pulling me out. It's even hard to really like communicate or even think about those times because the despair was just beyond words. And in her compounded grief, it grew difficult for Wilson to deliver the song she owed her publisher, but one that she did submit after completing it with her co-writer Jeremy Lutito in this very studio was Keep Rising. Like literally, I wrote it right in the spot that I'm sitting in right now. This couch yeah. was here. Yeah. I mean, when I wrote the song, I was talking to black people. 
there's a part of the lyrics that I'm also talking to myself about myself. Been marching so long. How far is it to get to where we're going? Like, how long do we have to wait in America? How long does Jesse have to wait? When will we be seen as enough? When will I be seen as enough? Wilson didn't have much hope that anything would come of the song. She lost her publishing deal and turned to making visual art. But on what would have been her baby's due date, she received big news. The director of The Woman King, Gina Prince Bythewood, had searched for just the right music to carry the audience out of the film's closing scene on an uplifting note and decided that Keep Rising was it. I was sent a group of about eight songs. I heard Keep Rising and my head was going and my heart was going. It made me feel. And so I listened to it again and really listened to the lyrics. And it was as if it was written for the movie. And one of the things I'm most excited by is I love hearing Jessie's story and who she is as an artist, where she was at the moment that this call came. I I love that. Wilson didn't at all mind adapting a couple of lines or making room for vocals from Beninese legend Angelique Kijo. I feel so connected to the intention and their mission for what they want this movie to accomplish in our industries. I want to see more opportunities for women who have a message, who are dark-skinned. If I can somehow open any doors, then I feel like I can hold on to that, the possibility of that as like my new found purpose. For NPR News, I'm Julie Height in Nashville. And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from ProQuest, whose website, Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S., curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at proquest.com go slash black freedom. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic with Benjamin Zander and cellist Hyung Choi, Dvorak and Brahms at Symphony Hall, November 12th, bostonphil.org. Camp Oatka, Sebago Lake, Maine, a boys' camp promoting service, safety, and equality through outdoors, arts, and athletics. Book risk-free at campoatka.org. And Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at cres.org slash wbur. The 2022 midterms are here. Democracy's on the ballot. Enough is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense. Tuning out is not an option. Join us Tuesday for a live election day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News. Live coverage starts Tuesday at 8 on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org.
I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time. In this hour, polls, waves, surges, how midterm elections look in these last days of the campaign. Later, following the money in state court races, World Series returns tonight. Will Philly get its home run groove back? Claire Alexander's new novel on a woman who hasn't been out of her front door for 1,214 days. And the artist known as Weird Al Yankovic and the biopic of his life that falsely defames a famous singer. In our movie, she's basically a soul-sucking succubus. She's basically a sociopath that is doing everything possible to get the Yankovic bump. Who is she? Stay tuned. First, our newscast. It's Saturday, November 5th, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Both parties making a final push this weekend as Americans head to the polls for the midterm election. Voting ends on Tuesday. NPR's Osma Khalid reports on President Biden's day. He's due in Illinois and Pennsylvania. President Biden is optimistic Democrats will keep control of the Senate, and he thinks they have a chance to keep the House as well. The thing that gives me the most confidence is the fact that the policies we've initiated, people care about. But the president also warned Friday that if Democrats lose the House and Senate, it'll be a horrible two years, though he has the veto pen. The president has been on the road touting legislation Democrats have passed and warning that Republicans want to cut Medicare and Social Security. Later today, he'll take that message to Philadelphia, where he'll be joined by former President Barack Obama. Asma Khalid, NPR News, traveling with the president. Oklahoma's governor says search and rescue teams are being sent to the small town of Idabel. Strong storms that produced tornadoes swept through the region along the border with Texas, leaving homes and other buildings in ruins. Powderly, Texas, was also hit hard. U.N. Assistant Secretary Mohamed Kalakiari says the U.N. Security Council needs to do all it can to prevent an escalation following this week's missile launches by North Korea. The Secretary General urges the DPRK to immediately return to the negotiation table. Kiari spoke after the U.S. clashed with Russia and China in a security Council meeting. The U.S. says the two are bending over backward to justify a series of North Korea missile launches, including four missiles fired today. The launches came amid joint exercises between the U.S. and South Korea that have been extended into this weekend. Ukraine state electricity operator says there will be regular blackouts in Kyiv and several other regions of the country. The move today comes as Russian forces continue to target Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Russia has denied that the drones it's been using came from Iran, but Iran's foreign minister today acknowledged transferring drones to Moscow before the invasion in February. At least 13 people have died in a fire at a Russian nightclub in a city 200 miles northeast of Moscow. Here's NPR's Charles Maines reporting. According to local authorities, the fire broke out at the Polygon nightclub cafe in the city of Kostroma as Russians were partying into the late hours over a holiday weekend. Video released by authorities showed firefighters spraying water on what appeared to be the smoldering remains of the club's collapsed roof. In a statement, Russia's investigative committee said it had launched a criminal probe into the cause of the blaze. The committee also 
also said its investigators were questioning the club's management over meeting safety requirements, as well as one other individual over an illegal use of pyrotechnics. State media later reported a 23-year-old Russian soldier had been arrested over suspicion of firing a flare gun inside the venue. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The candidates for governor are crisscrossing Massachusetts today in the last weekend of campaigning before Tuesday's general election. Democratic nominee Maura Healey will be in Springfield and Worcester today. Republican nominee Jeff Deal will be in Haverhill and over in Norwood. Early in-person voting for the election ended yesterday. Polls will be open on Tuesday from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. A Fall River police officer has been seriously hurt. He was struck by a car during a traffic stop just before 8 o'clock last night near Roberson and Delcar Streets. Police say the car that struck him sped away. The injured officer was taken to Rhode Island Hospital. Boston's women's professional hockey team begins its season tonight, and it is looking to repeat as league champions. WBUR's Dan Guzman has more on the home opener for the Boston Pride. Winthrop native and team captain Jillian Dempsey says once the Pride raises its championship banner ahead of the game, it's a clean slate. But once you're the champion and you have that taste at the end of the season, you never want to give that up. So for us, it doesn't matter how many we've won in the past. It's a fresh start. The Pride has won three titles in the PHF's eight seasons. Commissioner Reagan Carey will be on hand tonight to see what she calls a key market for the league to be a beacon for a lot of young girls and boys to see these great athletes competing at a professional level is just uh, special. The puck drops tonight at 7 at the Warrior Ice Arena in Brighton. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. The moment looms when we fall back. Daylight saving time ends at 2 a.m. tomorrow. So you might want to set your clocks back an hour before you go to bed tonight. You get an extra hour of sleep, and yet... Tomorrow, the sun will set at 4.31 p.m. Tonight, the Bruins face the Maple Leafs in Toronto, and tonight the Celtics play the Knicks in New York. Last night, the Celtics beat the Bulls 123-119. to It is 62 degrees in Boston today, tomorrow, and Monday. You can expect some sunshine with highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for being along with us today. In three days, the midterm election comes to an end, and American voters will have had the chance to vote on the direction they want for this country. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us now. Sue, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Election day. Not what it used to be. More like election season, right? Because voters have been voting for weeks now. How does this change the way the country might think about elections? Well, over 30 million Americans have already voted. Uh, We don't know how they voted, but it does tell us that more and more Americans like having options when it comes to how they cast their ballot. It's one change the pandemic sort of forced on the country in 2020, but is really becoming more of the norm. 
There are things that are generally true about early voting. Democrats like it more than Republicans. Republicans historically still like to show up on Election Day. And forces inside the party, like former President Trump, continue to cast unfounded doubts about the security of mail-in ballots. Our most recent NPR PBS Marist College poll showed about 55% of people say that they've either already voted or will do so before Election Day. And Democrats, by a two-to-one margin over Republicans, say they've already voted. Pit of caution here, that means you need to be a little uh, careful when you're interpreting these early vote numbers. They are heavily skewed towards Democrats. It also means you need to be patient with so many more mail ballots coming in. It takes states a lot longer to count the vote, and states like New York and California say final results could not be known for weeks. Glad you mentioned our polling uh, because it also shows where voter enthusiasm seems to be strongest and, and, and where it might be lacking. Republicans might have a lot to hope for on election night. What did we learn from this final snapshot of numbers of the electorate before November 8th? Well, the voters who typically align with the Republican Party are very enthusiastic. We're talking about Trump voters, rural voters, and older voters are all at the top of the list, while black voters, Latinos, and young voters way at the bottom. Just one example of how big this gap is, 87% of people in the baby boomer generation say they are very interested in the election, which means they're almost certainly going to vote versus just 52% of Gen Z and millennials. So this is one of these big red flashing signs for Democrats. The one group in their base, white women with college degrees, do appear to be very fired up and they are a very critical portion of the Democratic base, but these other pillars just are not excited. It's certainly not a role to try and predict outcomes, but uh, history would suggest this could be a difficult election for Democrats. Sure. And I mean, there are a lot of things that have made this midterm unique. Obviously, the Supreme Court ruling throwing out uh, precedent on abortion rights. Republicans, particularly in the Senate, have had uh, not the greatest recruitment year for their candidates. But the fundamentals of a midterm election is that it's a referendum on the party in power. And President Biden's approval rating is really low. It's in the high 30s or low 40s, depending on the state. Voters consistently say the economy is the number one issue on their mind, and that is an issue that voters tend to uh, lean on Republican candidates when they're not feeling economically secure. And you said, you're right, we're not prognosticators, but we talk to them all the time. Uh, one House Republican strategist told NPR just yesterday that they think their floor is 20 seats to gain in the House. Republicans need just five to take over the chamber. When it comes to the Senate, it's a jump ball. It's a 50-50 Senate now. It's unlikely either party is going to have a bigger than a 51-seat majority, and these races are really tight. It's really coming down to three races in Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Georgia. I think the bottom line for the Biden administration is they are very likely looking at divided government for the final two years of his first term, and these are likely to be much more combative and much less productive years with Capitol Hill. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Going to follow up on an issue from a key race in last year's election. We learned this week that Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's tip line for parents to, as he put it, report inherently divisive practices in schools was quietly shut down in September. The email address sparked an immediate backlash when it was first announced after the Republican took office in January. Ben Pavier joins us now from member station VPM in Richmond. Ben, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. And remind us, why, why did the governor say it was necessary to, to set up this line in the first place? 
Well, Youngkin ran for office last year on the notion that public education system was just too liberal, that kids were being, in his words, indoctrinated into concepts like critical race theory. Uh, he didn't provide much proof for that, but within the first couple of weeks of his inauguration, the governor announced this email address on conservative talk shows, and he pitched it as a way for parents to reach his office directly. For parents to send us any instances where they feel that their fundamental rights are being violated, where their children are not being respected, where there are inherently divisive practices in their schools. And what kind of public reaction was there? Some of his supporters were obviously very excited about this, but there was also enormous pushback from people who found the whole thing kind of Orwellian. Some people tried to undermine the tip line, or as they called it, snitch line, by sending emails praising teachers or criticizing Youngkin. The governor argued this was private communication between citizens and his office, and he blocked public records requests to see the submissions. NPR and other media outlets sued, and eventually the administration handed over 350 emails as part of a settlement. And they were a real grab bag. Uh, many came from a special education advocate who argued the state had failed those students. Some related to local mask mandates in schools. Uh, there was some praise for teachers, too. Uh, one notable one came from a high school student who didn't like the way their English teacher was discussing the epic poem Beowulf. The student wrote, I'm quoting here, uh, all my teacher wants to talk about is how the book is sexist because it portrays the warriors as men and not women. Ben, why was the tip line shut down, do you know? A spokesperson for Youngkin said they shut it down in September because it was receiving, quote, little or no volume of responses. Don Scott, the top lawmaker in Virginia's House of Delegates, said the whole thing was designed to provoke the kind of divisiveness that Youngkin claimed he's trying to prevent. It's just, you know, ironic to me that the people who say they're for small government now want big brother in the classroom, now want big brother on tip lines. Youngkin's mostly moved on to other topics. His administration has proposed new rules on transgender students that would require parental consent before a child can adopt new pronouns at school. And the State Board of Education is revamping the history standards the state uses for standardized tests. Democrats like Don Scott argue this is all geared to build up Youngkin's national profile within the Republican Party. Youngkin's been raising lots of money and has been a coveted speaker for GOP candidates like Kerry Lake in Arizona and Lee Zeldin in New York. And that's all fueled speculation that he's gunning for the White House. Ben Pavier, member station VPM in Richmond, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. And latest on the war in Ukraine, both Russian and U Ukrainian officials warn major battle may be brewing for Kherson. Millions of people across Ukraine are without electricity after Russian strikes on energy infrastructure. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Kyiv and joins us now. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, good morning. What more can you tell us about what the situation seems to be uh, in and around Kherson? You know, first, I should say that there have been rumblings for weeks, even months, that Ukrainian troops are going to retake Kherson. And while they have made progress towards the city, Russia still holds it at the moment. That said, the Moscow-backed government has been ferrying civilians out of Kherson to the east bank of the Dnieper River and taking them deeper into Russian-controlled territory. Yesterday, even Russian President Vladimir Putin weighed in, saying all civilians should be evacuated from the city of Kherson. Putin said that the civilian population shouldn't suffer shelling, um, and his concern, his warning here, is quite frightening given how willing Russia was to pound civilians in order to take the city of Mariupol. The loss of Kherson would be another major setback for Moscow, and there's concern that this could turn into a bloody urban battle. You mentioned there's been talk for some time of uh, a Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive. What other signs seem to add up that uh, a battle for Kherson might be imminent? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the Ukrainian troops definitely are advancing, although slowly. They've taken back a lot of territory from the Russians north and west of the city, but also we are seeing and hearing about shifts inside Kherson itself. This week, residents are reporting that Russian military roadblocks, all of a sudden, they're unmanned and abandoned out in the street. On Thursday, the Russian flag, which had been flying over the main government building in the the center of town was no longer there. Also, Moscow-backed proxy government officials, they pulled all of their bureaucrats out of Harrison and moved them to a city about 50 miles deeper into Russian-controlled territory. And then there has been this drumbeat by Russian officials that civilians should leave. Um, and that drumbeat seems to be getting more and more frantic. And what have Ukrainians said? Ukrainian intelligence officials are warning that this could all be a trap to try to lure Kyiv's forces into the city where they might easily be ambushed. And so far, they're being very cautious. Uh, they continue to warn that there, this could be a brutal battle uh, over this strategic port at the mouth of the Dnipro River. And we don't want to overlook that the uh, the rolling power outages seem to continue because of Russian attacks on the uh, electrical infrastructure. Uh, how, yeah. si how significant are these blackouts? Oh, I mean, they're huge. They're happening all across the country, and they're coming as it's getting quite cold here. President Vladimir Zelensky on Thursday said Russia is launching attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure every day, and he said rolling blackouts are happening all across the country. They cannot defeat Ukraine on the battlefield, Zelensky said. That is why they're trying to break our people in this way. Uh, but he added, Russia will not succeed. He added, however, though, that Ukrainians are going to have to buckle down. They're going to have to conserve electricity, and they're going to have to shoulder the burden of power outages as part of fighting against Russia in this war. And here's Jason Bobian in Kyiv. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stakes are high in the midterms. Spend election day and night with NPR and WBUR for analysis and results. Live coverage begins at 8 Tuesday here on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. WBUR occasionally gives you the chance to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising. You're not required to make a donation to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated entities are not eligible for drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, &H, the Handel and Haydn Society. With Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org. Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Good News Garage accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org. With the midterm elections heating up this weekend, President Biden is due to speak at an elementary school in Juliet, Illinois, later this morning. And this afternoon, he's to join former President Barack Obama in Philadelphia. 
Former President Trump is also set to campaign in Pennsylvania. Authorities in Oklahoma say at least one person is dead following a string of damaging tornadoes that hit parts of the state and neighboring Texas. Some two dozen others are said to be injured, and dozens of homes and buildings have been damaged or destroyed. And the Houston Astros are one win away from the World Series crown. They're taking a three-games-to-two lead into tonight's Game 6 against the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm Giles Snyder. NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Congressional and gubernatorial campaigns get a lot of attention during midterm elections. And, of course, they raise a lot of money. But this year, state judicial races have also attracted a lot of donations. Why? Douglas Keith is an attorney at the Brennan Center for Justice. He joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Almost $100 million, we're told, was funneled into state Supreme Court campaigns in 2020. Any reason to think that's lower this year? And and what's attracting interest? Well, this year, the spotlight on state Supreme Courts is brighter than it has ever been. And that's in big part the result of U.S. Supreme Court decisions in which the court has essentially punted big questions to the state courts. So on things from abortion to redistricting, questions that folks may be used to being decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. it'll be state Supreme Courts that are asked Uh, whether state law or the state constitution protects particular rights or or democratic institutions. Illinois, North Carolina, and Ohio, a lot of spending there. The one thing we can look to to predict whether a state Supreme Court election is going to attract a lot of money and attention is whether the partisan or ideological majority on that court is up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And those three states, the majority will be decided by this election. And in each of those three states, there have been high profile rulings recently that are attracting a lot of attention uh, and a lot of interest in who is going to control a majority on those courts. Mm. Mr. Keith, is this necessarily bad? I mean, isn't this just democracy and a reflection of public interest? So judicial elections were adopted, you know, a a century or more ago in some states as a reform tactic. The idea was judges were being picked behind closed doors in smoke-filled rooms and elections were supposed to add transparency to the process, bring them out into the sunshine. But the way this money is coming into judicial elections today does nothing for transparency. A lot of the money in some states, more than half, more than 75% of all the money that will come in, comes from super PACs and other opaque groups that don't tell voters where their money's coming from. And so voters can't assess who's trying to sway their votes or who's trying to influence who sits on their courts. Voters don't know when their judges have 
major conflicts of interest. Well, you mentioned major conflicts of interest. Could that be a, a company that, that can anticipate having business before the court? Absolutely. One of the big groups of spenders that we see in judicial elections is businesses that know how important these courts are to their bottom lines. And so they try and influence who sits on the courts. So those courts will be more friendly to them when they or their peers mm -hmm. come before the court. Now, these groups are also very good at hiding their identity from voters. And so even if they're getting involved in judicial elections to that extent, voters may never know. As you note, an elective judiciary came into being as a reform idea. Is what's beginning to happen, does that renew an argument for an appointive judiciary? There are absolutely better systems of picking judges than the way modern judicial elections are operating. There are states that use commissions with broad, uh, diverse sets of voices from across the state to vet and recommend judges for appointment by governors. Mm -hmm. There's also the option for states, even if they keep elections, to only elect judges to single lengthy terms. So once they're on the bench, they're no longer subject to these political pressures that research shows can actually influence their decision making. I mean, I remember going in to vote in Illinois and there was a, um, you know, a huge list of judges to vote for or against. And um, forgive me, the only way I would know their names, and I was a crime reporter, was if I'd been in their courtroom or if they'd been indicted for something themselves. This is a, another important feature of judicial elections for everyone to be aware of. While these elections are held, often the public has very, very little information about who these judges are. And that's part of the spending story too. Lots of these groups, they will spend millions in a judicial election race or even you know, half a million dollars, which it can look small when you compare it to a Senate race that's happening at the same time. But because voters know so little, because there's so little news about these races, there's a pretty small price tag to have a pretty big influence on these elections and, and these sophisticated political groups, they know that. Douglas Keith at the Brennan Center for Justice, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Offshore wind farms are poised to deliver a lot of carbon-free electricity, but the electrical grid in many coastal areas can't handle that load. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, one solution may be to lay an electrical grid in the ocean. Brighton Point in southeast Massachusetts was once home to New England's largest coal plant. Now, Lawrence Mott with offshore wind developer Mayflower Wind says this humming electrical equipment is about to get a second greener life. With the coal plant being decommissioned, we're taking advantage of that same infrastructure to connect the offshore wind power it will all start 30 miles out in the ocean, where later this decade, powerful winds will spin turbines to generate electricity. The energy will travel through cables buried about six feet beneath the ocean floor and land here at Brayton Point. And from there, it goes into the public's grid system. To date, all offshore wind projects on the East Coast are designed to work like this. Wind developers will essentially run a high-voltage extension cord from their wind farms to open substations on land, usually whatever's closest. This is fine for now, but soon there will be two big problems. First, developers could run out of places like Brayton Point to plug into. And second, the onshore grid just isn't set up to accept so much electricity. All of us have had moments where we plugged in too many things to one socket in the house and we blew a fuse, right? Eric Hines leads the Offshore Wind Energy Graduate Program at Tufts University. He says to think about transmission lines like a system of arteries, veins, and capillaries. Bigger lines can carry more power. When you plug into the grid, you want to plug into the arteries, right? 
if you get a blood transfusion, you don't take it through your finger where they try to pump blood through your capillaries. You know, you really have to find the right points into the grid. Many of the first few offshore wind projects will plug into Cape Cod and parts of Long Island. But the grid in those areas is full of capillaries. Upgrading to arteries will cost billions of dollars. And that's if it can even get permitted. It would be ideal if we could create a system that the offshore wind farms could connect into as opposed to every project trying to find its own landing point, its own connection into the land-based grid. What Heinz is talking about is a coordinated transmission system of arteries in the ocean that will bring power directly to Boston, New York City, and other population centers along the East Coast. Instead of extension cords, think of linked power strips. This so-called ocean grid isn't necessarily a new idea, but it's gained traction in the last few years as offshore wind finally looks like it's going to take off in the U.S. And so we've got a natural opportunity now to focus on building out the ocean grid. Peter Shattuck is the president of Anberic, a Boston-based company that specializes in building transmission infrastructure for renewable energy. He says there could be one central backbone running from Maine to Florida that all the projects plug into, or something that's more decentralized. But whatever the design, experts say building it will be cheaper and probably faster than only trying to upgrade onshore infrastructure. It likely would be better for the environment and fishing industry, too, since it would require fewer cables under the ocean floor. Plus, Shattuck says, connecting all of the wind farms offshore would be good for grid reliability. If any one of the lines goes down, you still have all the other ones. Still, there are a lot of big unknowns about an offshore grid. Who builds it? Who pays for it? Who owns it? The federal government is looking at some of these questions as part of a two-year study for the Atlantic coast. And in the meantime, some states are moving forward independently. New Jersey is the farthest ahead. It recently approved a coordinated transmission plan for its next few offshore wind projects. New York is requiring that all new projects use compatible cable technology. And New England state leaders are looking into how they can use federal infrastructure dollars to build offshore transmission for the region. Back at Brayton Point, Lawrence Mott with Mayflower Wind says he's optimistic about all of this. The major benefit of building offshore is that it's new, it's fresh. You can start with a clean slate on how you want to design it, and you can use the latest technology. Other wind developers also say they're open to the idea of an ocean grid, but they're not banking on it coming together anytime soon. They're on the line to deliver a lot of power by specific dates, so for the time being, they're planning to run extension cords to shore. For NPR News, I'm Miriam Wasser in Somerset, Massachusetts. COP27 begins tomorrow, the UN Climate Conference, and another bid to try to get global cooperation to avoid worst effects of climate change. Later today, and All Things Considered, a conversation with the UN ambassador from Belize and what she would like for her country and the world to gain from negotiations this month. You can listen live at this station's website or at npr.org. And now it's time for sports. World Series returns with Houston just a win away. Kyrie Irving and his anti-Semitic post and FIFA urges players to leave politics aside in the World Cup. Can you do that in Cotter? And Pierce Tom Goldman joins us. Hi there, Tom. Hi, Scott. Game six in the series tonight. Houston Astros lead the Phillies 3-2. to two. Uh, Has that magnificent, well-muscled, 
<laughs> Sharp-eyed Philly lineup forgotten how to hit. And if anyone knows well muscled, it's you. Um, <laughs> Philly's bats definitely have cooled of late. A combination of them missing pitches and the Astros making pitches, especially in that dazzling game for combined no hitter by Houston's yeah. pitchers. Philly's strength is offense. If they don't rediscover it tonight, we're going to be talking dynasty, Scott, with Houston winning a second World Series title since 2017 and being the complete team, great on offense, defense, pitching that we've seen for much of the last six years. Sad and outrageous story this week. We live in a time with rising anti-Semitism. Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets added to it when he posted a link to an anti-Semitic film. He's been suspended for at least five games without pay. Uh, that's pocket change to somebody on an NBA contract. His apology has been dubious. Why has it seemed like the league and the team had to be dragged into doing something? ESPN did an autopsy uh, on the week, and it says the league was waiting for Nets owner Joe Tsai to act. He reportedly tried patience first, trying to educate Irving's, Irving about anti-Semitism, but Kyrie apparently wasn't a, wasn't a willing participant while making evasive and even defiant comments in public. Mm -hmm. And then when he wouldn't answer no to a reporter's question Thursday about if he had anti-Semitic beliefs, that was the last straw. The suspension by the Nets last night, Nike suspended its relationship with Irving. Scott, it's been a debacle for the NBA with all these parties, delayed reactions, including NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. And in the meantime, the film in question, which Irving brought to the world's attention, yeah. which includes statements like the Holocaust never happened, as of yesterday afternoon, it was the top-selling documentary on Amazon. Oh, my. little publicity goes a long way. Um, yeah. World Cup kicks off in two weeks. FIFA's president sent a letter to national teams and players urging them to, quote, let football take center stage, keep politics on the sidelines. Is that possible when they're playing in Qatar? Well, sure. There's already been a lot of attention on Qatar's anti-LGBTQ policies, although the country's leaders say fa all fans will be welcomed without discrimination. And attention on the treatment of migrant workers who've helped build the stadiums and infrastructure for the World Cup. But it is important to remember FIFA is part of this process, too. It chose Qatar as the host with yeah. a bidding process allegedly rife with corruption and bribery. And if we're to believe a high-ranking FIFA official, FIFA chose this and other other controversial sites in the past willingly. In 2013, then FIFA General Secretary Jerome Valka said at a symposium, less democracy is sometimes better for organizing a World Cup. When you have a very oh. strong head of state who can decide, that's easier for us organizers than a country where you have to negotiate at different levels. World Cup players are their own multi-million dollar uh, enterprises, and they have to worry about, about their home fans, too, don't they, right, back in Britain and France? Well, they do. It's a good point. These men are very wealthy from their club contracts, but we're already hearing from several World Cup teams that players will take a stand. So despite the FIFA president's plea, athletes may not keep politics on the sidelines. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Thanks so much, Tom. Talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Lois Curtis is not one of those civil rights pioneers whose name gets taught in school history class. My name is Lois Curtis Happy, uh, Black History Month. I'm glad to be free.
Curtis had spent most of her life in and out of grim state hospitals in Georgia. She had an intellectual disability and a psychiatric disability. At one state hospital, she met a lawyer, Sue Jamison, from Atlanta Legal Aid. As we always say, what is it that you think we could do for you? We were, I work at Legal Aid and I'm a lawyer and she'd say, get me out of here. Would you please get me out of here? When am I getting out of here? Jameson's lawsuit argued that people like Lois Curtis could and should get the care they needed in their own homes. That case, L.C. versus Olmstead, reached the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1999, the court ruled that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, Curtis and other people with disabilities had a constitutional right to get their care funded in a, quote, less restrictive setting outside of a state institution or a nursing home, and to get that care in their own homes. So she created a sea change in what our service systems look like. Allison Barkoff is the top federal official for aging and disability policy. We went from a system in 1999 that the only place that most people with disabilities and older adults could get services we're in institutions like nursing homes and psychiatric hospitals. State Medicaid budgets shifted. Today, less government funding goes to pay for care in institutions like nursing homes. More money goes to pay for care at home. To systems that are primarily focused on supporting people with services in their own homes and in their own communities. There are still long waiting lists for care at home. But the Olmstead decision requires every state to move towards providing more and more of that care at home. The argument behind the Olmstead decision was that when people live in their communities, they live better, more fulfilling lives. Curtis proved it. She moved into a series of houses needing help from a caregiver with things like cooking, shopping, and other care. It turned out that Curtis was a talented artist, something she never got to try when she lived in the state hospital. A cat. A horse and a dog. When I spent time with her in 2010, she showed me some of her brightly colored pastels and pencil drawings. And a goat and a uh, fish. And sometimes she drew people whose pictures she saw in magazines and books. This is Martin Luther King. That's Martin Luther King, yeah, with his, with his uh, arms crossed. He looks very serious. Yeah, he's a preacher. Curtis was very social and good at making friends. They bought her art supplies and helped her sell her artwork. Curtis died on Thursday in her own home outside of Atlanta from pancreatic cancer at the age of 55. She was surrounded by many of those friends. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
with the final chance to cast ballots coming up Tuesday. This is the last weekend of the campaign. The contenders in the Massachusetts governor's race are making appearances around the state today. Republican Jeff Deal takes part in events in Haverhill and over in Norwood. Maura Healy takes part in rallies in Springfield and Worcester. Plans for an electrical substation in East Boston are moving forward. Yesterday, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled against an effort to block its construction. Activists have opposed the project for years and say they will keep up the fight. Today, Boston holds its annual Veterans Day Parade. It kicks off at noon from the Boston Public Library in Copley Square. It is 61 degrees in Boston today, tomorrow, and Monday. You can expect some sunshine with highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Dublin School, Southern New Hampshire Boarding and Day School, rooted in curiosity, kindness, and fun, grades 9 through 12. Open house tomorrow, dublinschool.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scribner, publisher of The Song of the Cell by the Emperor of All Maladies author Siddhartha Mukherjee. An exploration of medicine and the new ability to manipulate cells. Available in bookstores and online. And from the Kauffman Foundation, working together with communities to break down barriers and prepare all people for success in their jobs and careers as employees or entrepreneurs. More online at Kauffman.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Meredith is not alone, although she is the character at the center of Claire Alexander's novel, Meredith Alone. She's got a job writing website copy remotely. She has a cat named Fred. Sadie, her friend, visits with her children. She has an online friend named Celeste and in-person visits from Tom, who's with a group in Glasgow called Holding Hands. But let's ask Claire Alexander to read the entire page three of her novel. Wednesday, November 14th, 2018. My name is Meredith Maggs and I haven't left my home for 1,214 days. Claire Alexander joins us now from Scotland. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. I gather this premise was on your mind long before the pandemic made us all feel a little bit like Meredith. Yeah, and I still find that quite surreal actually that six months before we first went into lockdown here in the UK I was writing about a character who was effectively self-isolating um Mm -hmm. so by the time I was in a very similar position to her I felt like I'd kind of done the whole jigsaw thing and the baking and the online connections and the zoom calls 
I think it helped me a little because if I was having a bad day or I was particularly stressed or worried about the pandemic and, and how, it, how it affected my family, um, I would think, well, what would Meredith do in this situation? Um, although I do have to say that I don't share her aptitude for jigsaws or for baking, so neither of those things um, were very useful to me. She takes all of that up while she is uh, in her self-imposed isolation. She she tells Tom, the visitor from Holding Hands, that what she's feeling feels like a a constant weight. What puts that weight there? Well, Meredith, she has mental health issues, but she also experienced something very traumatic um, that mm -hmm. led to her isolation. And I think... Anyone who's gone through a trauma or who's, who's lived with mental health issues, that heaviness, that weight, I think that idea will be familiar to them. It certainly is something that I've experienced myself. And we just have to figure out how to, how to lift it a little. You are also an accomplished freelance journalist and you have written about mental health and sobriety. Uh, for The Independent, for Glamour, and other publications. May I ask, is something you learned in your journalism, something you wrote, did all of that put Meredith in your mind? I've actually, I've been starting novels for a long time, probably 20 years, but never finishing them. <laughs> Meredith was the one that stuck and the one I finished, finally. Um, I mean, it's completely different type of writing to the the reported pieces that I've done over the last several years but all the research that went into those pieces about mental health and about therapy and and everything that is connected to it as as well as my own personal experience of mental health issues I mm -hmm. think that really gave me a confidence to to tackle this subject I've read lots of books myself with characters who have mental health issues and you know, sometimes I've been disappointed, I felt a bit shortchanged. And it was important to me that even though Meredith has gone through this massive trauma and and even even during the course of the book and the in the present day narrative, she has some really dark times. I didn't want her to be defined by her mental health in the same way as I don't want to be defined by mine. It's you know, it's 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 a big yeah. part of my life, but it's it's just one part and I wanted to have lighter moments and really to to show that Meredith is is more than that, you know, she's she's funny, she's bright, she's interesting, she's interested in people. She's she's delightful and and a great baker mm -hmm. and a great friend. She is, yeah, she's a very good friend, and the new friendships that she makes during the course of the novel, which are really you know quite unexpected to her, um, the way that she helps those people. Yeah. As much as they help her, that is really a big part of her of her healing journey, I think. Now that Meredith is out in the world, will you miss her? <laughs> I do miss her, and I've just actually submitted my first draft of book two to my publishers in the UK and in the US. It was almost like I was cheating on Meredith, <laughs> and I think I was just so invested in her and so... She's just so real to me and, uh, you know, she always will be and she'll always be there. But I do, I do miss her. Um, a few people have asked if I'll go back to her and to her story, but I think we'll just leave her in the place that she's in. 
Claire Alexander, her novel, Meredith Alone. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Time now for a fact check. Film critics are unanimous. Weird. The Al Yankovic story is the greatest film in the history of cinema. It's been compared to The Battleship Potemkin, Breathless, and Seven Samurai. It's the frontrunner for the Oscar, the Palme d'Or, and the Nobel Peace Prize. Directed by Eric Appel from a script written with Al Yankovic, it tells the fully authenticated story of a man who ends the climate crisis, inflation, and flatulence by writing and recording song parodies that elevate the accordion to the artistry intended by Johann Sebastian Bach. Film stars Daniel Radcliffe, who's not nearly handsome enough to play Weird Al Yankovic, along with Evan Rachel Wood, Rain Wilson, Toby Huss, and Julianne Nicholson, and Al Yankovic, who, of course, is often considered the leading candidate for Secretary General of the United Nations, joins us. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, and thanks so much for noticing all of the above. The film really does star Daniel Radcliffe. Are you disappointed you couldn't get a bigger star to play you? You know, when I look at Daniel Radcliffe, it's kind of like looking in a mirror. He's like an exact physical doppelganger. It's, it's ah. uncanny. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, a laugh seemed to just seize my throat. Yes, go ahead, please. But seriously, um, Daniel was, was always our first pick because I was just so impressed by his acting range because he can play comedic roles extremely well, and he also does very serious, intense, dramatic roles very well. And we wanted to, you know, have both sides of the coin because it is, in fact, a comedy movie. But there's some, you know, you need to have some serious dramatic acting chops because there's some intense scenes in this. Well, there are, and I didn't know we'd, we'd get serious so early on, but for the first seven-eighths of the film... Your father is shown as being hard-hearted and brutal. What in God's name are you doing? Those aren't the right words. I made him better. By changing the lyrics to a well-known song? But, Dad... God, what has gotten into you, Alfred? Everything I have read suggests that is absolutely not what your father was like at all. So how do you feel about that portrait of your father, even if it's meant to be satiric? You know, I, I think my dad would have gotten a kick out of that. And we had to do that because this is a standard Hollywood biopic, and you can't have a biopic unless you have a troubled childhood and a dramatic arc where, where your parents are fighting against your, your inner essence. Honey, I know it's hard to hear this, but your dad and I had a long talk, and... We agreed it would be best for all of us if you just stop being who you are and doing the things you love. Mm. I see. To get the film made, you had to make a, take a few dramatic licenses. A, 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 yeah. a few concessions here and there, yeah. Yeah. In this film, Madonna is an important character in your life. Yes. I, I'm sorry if it's painful for you to talk about it. I apologize in advance. She is shown using you in all ways, uh, sexually, commercially taking advantage of your fame and brilliance to, to latch on and become a huge star in her own right. Have you ever actually met Madonna? Uh, yes, and, and uh, everything you just said is not entirely true. I do not have a relationship with Madonna, platonic or otherwise. I, I, I've been told you've met her for about 45 seconds. That, that's correct. Yeah, I met her backstage at one of her shows back in, I think, 1985. So that, yeah. that the, that's the extent of our actual relationship. But I took that one little nugget of truth and expanded it into a, a whole dramatic arc. Oh, yeah. Dr. Demento was right. 
You were just using me to further your own career, weren't you? Yeah. My relationship with you was a business decision. It's all just business. Okay then. Have a nice life. Whoa! I can't let you leave, Al. You know too much. What are you talking about? She's basically a sociopath that is doing everything possible to get the Yankovic bump. And the Yankovic bump is an actual thing because whenever I do a parody song, the original artist actually experiences a oh. spike in record sales. That's a real thing. Yeah. I, I've also been told that, in fact, the suggestion for your song, Like a Surgeon, did it come from Madonna? It, it did. And some people say that Madonna asked me to do that. I, don't, I wouldn't say that. Uh, from what I heard, she was just kind of musing out loud to a friend of hers one day, oh, I, I wonder what Weird Al's going to do like a surgeon, because it seemed like the obvious thing to do. And her friend happened to know my manager, and Weird got back to me, and I thought, well, not a bad idea. Mm. So so I, she did indirectly suggest that title for the song. So again, we, we took that little nugget and it blew it up into to <laughs> the character yeah. that she becomes in the movie. Can't believe I'm asking you a serious question, but here goes. Were you, oh. were you trying to say something show something about biopics. Well, the, the whole joke is that biopics take so many creative liberties that they really can't be trusted whatsoever. Yeah. Even, even documentaries, sometimes you can't trust 100%, but biopics are made purely for entertainment purposes, and they're based in reality, but they take a lot of liberties. And when I saw movies like Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man, both of which I really liked, and I'm a huge Queen fan and a huge Elton John fan, mm -hmm. it irked me because I saw so many times when they just arbitrarily changed facts or changed their chronology. And uh, as a fan, that disturbed me, but I, I understood on some level why they did it, but I just thought like, oh, if, if I ever do my own biopic, I'm just gonna throw facts out the window. I wanna ask you about Amish Paradise because we, we find the true origin story, of course, in this film. <laughs> I'm a man of the land, I'm into discipline. Got a Bible in my hand and a beard on my chin. But if I finish all of my chores and you finish thine, then tonight we're gonna party like it's 1699. We've been spending most our lives living in an Amish paradise. A churn And of course, it's cover of Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise. Now, Coolio, artist Ivy Jr., unfortunately left us this year. He did not initially like Amish Paradise, but you, you two reached some kind of rapprochement or something? That, that's true. I, initially, there was a, I guess there was a beef. I, I don't know. I, I live my life pretty much drama-free. But that was a, an occasion which was very unfortunate because I, I always pride myself on getting the artist's blessing and permission ahead of time. And I thought I had Coolio's, but as it turns out, and I just found this out actually fairly recently, the misunderstanding was that my record label had gotten permission from Coolio's producer, but not from Coolio himself. So his producer was fine, but when my parody came out, Coolio was a bit miffed because he thought that his song was too serious to be made fun of. And and uh, there were there were a couple years there where there was, you know, I guess you could say some bad blood. But Coolio, thankfully, in time, decided that this song was actually pretty funny and that he overreacted. And, 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 and he wound up being fine with it. And it was water under the bridge for, for many years. You have, in real life, 
as opposed to anything we see on screen here, you really have sold millions and millions of albums. You've won five Grammy Awards. You have six platinum records. How the hell did that happen? I don't know. This, this was never supposed to happen. You know, novelty act, you know, musical comedy, like, you know, that, that's the domain of one-hit wonders historically. So the big irony of my life is that I've now had this like 40 plus year career uh, doing this stupid music. And most of the serious artists that I parodied along the way are now not so much in the public eye. Oh, my word. And I have read, contrary maybe to expectation, you are actually very devoted to your family and even religious. Uh, yeah, that's all true. It's, uh, you know, I had a religious upbringing and, and I'm very devoted to my family. And yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons, I suppose, why my material is, is somewhat family friendly. I mean, it goes to some pretty dark places, but I, I don't use profanity in, you know, in my own life or in, in any of my uh, material. And that's just because that was the way I was brought up. That was the way I was raised. And, you know, that, that just continues to this day. I'm sorry for using the H word. Forgive me. <laughs> I mean, I, I usually don't have to apologize to nuns when I interview them if I refer to, <laughs> to that. But to, to Weird Al, I have to. As we say here at NPR, all jokes considered, is there a lesson in this film about, about being what some people consider weird? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not a message movie. It's a comedy, and, and the main goal is for people to, to laugh and have a good time. But, you know, if you want to glean a message, mm -hmm. Daniel Radcliffe, as me, does a speech at the end at a big music awards show. He encourages people to be as weird as they want to be, mm -hmm. and he says that you will never be truly happy unless you can accept who you actually are. And, you know, that's, that's an important message, and I'm glad that's in the movie. And, I mean, that's sort of the subtext of my life and my career as well. Weird Al Yankovic, he uh, produced and co-wrote the new cinematic classic, Weird, the Al Yankovic story, now on Roku. Thank you so much for being with us. You know, it's rare we get to talk to a big star like you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> Take care. Like a surgeon. And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Not so weird, but creatively eccentric B.J. Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's Greatest Comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. 
Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. And Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers assisting families with the sale of their paintings and jewelry for 35 years. Grogan.co.com. The 2022 midterms are here. Democracy's on the ballot. Enough is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense. Tuning out is not an option. Join us Tuesday for a live election day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News. Live coverage starts Tuesday at 8 on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.